Now, the title of this morning's message is Choose, Pick, Select. I'm going to explain to you exactly why it is that I chose, why I picked, and why I selected that title. It has everything to do with, of course, the, the chapter that we're going through this morning. But it'll become very clear, it'll become very apparent as to why it is that that is the title of the message. But Romans chapter 9, we're going to start off by reading the first 13 verses as the Apostle Paul continues in his letter uh, to the Romans, that is to the believers in Rome. So chapter 9, verse 1 says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience Bears, witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. There are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will, uh, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told... The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once more for another moment where we could study your scripture. I pray your blessing upon, Lord, uh, just us as a fellowship, as your people. Father, we are gathered to hear from you. And so I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would give us understanding and Lord, that we would be clear about your selection, your choices, your will, and how it is that you went about fulfilling your plan of redemption. And so, Lord, let us hear from you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to open up not only our ears to hear what you would have us here, but also our hearts, Lord, that you would give us understanding. And so we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People make choices every day. It's part of what is required in life to make progress, to be productive, and to advance an overall plan and strategy. If a man was made in God's image then it would be fitting that the capacity to choose that is present in people would also be present in the Creator, the Lord our God. 
And it would be reasonable to think that the choices that are made by God would fit God's overall plan to give man a way to be reconciled unto him and to live in harmony with him. But regarding people, we do indeed make choices. Not only regarding day-to-day work, regarding our homes, regarding our personal relationships with other people, but also eternally speaking regarding God. This morning we will be learning about choices that God made and how it is that those specific choices did not change or deviate from his overall desire that all would choose him and choose salvation and grace. We'll talk about Jacob and Esau, but we'll also talk about Isaac and Abraham, Gentiles and the remnant, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, choices. God has made choices, and you and I make choices each and every day. That reflects the image of God. The bottom line for man is whether he will choose God on the basis of faith in Christ or personal works. But only one choice will achieve salvation by grace. The other falls short. You know, Joshua gave the people a choice. To not choose is a choice. In Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, and I have selected someone to read that loudly for us. Thank you. I chose him and not you. I chose him and rejected everyone else. I just want to make that point. I don't love you any less in regards to my desire for you to hear that word, to know it and apply it, for you to choose from the truth that you've heard and do what's right. Think about that as we continue in our study of this chapter. You know, John, the Apostle John, spoke of a choice and not forced, quote-unquote, election as the Calvinists preach. You see, you are given the truth and you are now equipped to make a choice, exercise faith in Jesus Christ or not. I've heard it likened to someone who is drowning. I'm very familiar. I've, I've gone through that whole uh, the, the, the study and the, the classes and everything in regards to uh, being a lifeguard and, you know, being safe in the water. But at some point, if you get in trouble in the water, there are these things that are circular and they float 
There are also these small boats that are inflatable, and they go out. And without that, you will not be saved. Your choice to believe that that would actually save you is not you saving yourself. It's you just simply believing and holding on and coming back. Think about that, because in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Three points that I want to make this morning. Number one, promise is a choice. That's God's choice. Number two, choice doesn't absolve responsibility. And number three, God chose. Now you choose. So let's start off with the first one. Promise is a choice. Verses 1 through 13 covers this. Let's again read the first five verses. This is Paul's great sorrow. This is how he starts out this chapter. Now, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are very important because what Paul is explaining is how it is that the Jews and the Gentiles would come to salvation. He wanted to make sure that those who were in Rome knew exactly how it was that we who were in desperate need of a Savior knew how it was that we all come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so there's this great sorrow that overwhelms the Apostle Paul. And he begins this chapter in verse 1 by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's a genuine sorrow that fills the Apostle Paul's heart for the Jews, his fellow countrymen. You see, not all at that point had believed in Jesus Christ, just as it is true today. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul knew, not all of them knew salvation. In the first eight chapters, Paul has explained how it is that people are in need of a Savior, whom the Father has provided in and through His only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth. But even though God has promised a Savior, God has also provided. He has followed through with His Word. He's been faithful to bring about the Messiah through the Israelites. But they have not all chosen Him, and Paul is overwhelmed with grief. Absolutely overwhelmed with sorrow. Think about this, God, and and this is what was going through Paul's mind as we see it written in the pages of the Bible. God had chosen the Jews to be his people. Abraham, having been called by God to come out from his people and be separated unto God, and to go to the place of God, place that God had called him. It was an exercise of choice. And Abraham chose to leave all to follow God. 
I suppose that God could have chosen anyone else, but he called Abraham. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God wishes that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Keep that in mind as there's this, there's this point about choice, choosing, picking, selecting. But that doesn't ignore everyone else. It was through God's chosen people that he chose to make covenants, give the law, receive worship, speak promises, and through whom came the prophets and the Christ, the Son of God, who was God and is God. And Paul, who loved his people and knew all that the Jews had been privileged with, was deeply grieved that they did not all come to faith in Christ. And said that he was even willing to be himself cursed so that his people, the Jews, would come to faith. This grief weighed so heavy on Paul's heart that time and time again as we see in the letters that he wrote that he did not fail in every city that he would come into to go to the synagogue and to preach the gospel to his countrymen, to his fellow Jews. But just because many chose to not believe in Jesus Christ did not mean that the word of God had failed. And that's what we see in verse 6. You see, he was grieved. He was heavy in heart. Many of those through whom the, covenant, the covenants had come, the promise, the Savior, the Messiah, the people that God had chosen, even though not all of them had believed in Jesus Christ, that didn't mean that the word had failed. Because that could be the natural conclusion. If this was indeed so, then why didn't they believe? Why didn't they all believe? Sometimes we major in the minors. Paul addressed all kinds of issues in his letters. But the one thing that prevailed in his heart is the topic, the subject of salvation. You see, he himself desired that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It was his own heart that he would reflect a character like that of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That he was willing to perish for the sake of others. He was willing to lay down his own life. A heart that is focused on God in that manner, who's overwhelmed with seeing others come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, the small things in life or those things that seemingly are inconsequential in comparison to salvation will be dealt with and yet not allowed to be distractions to deviate from the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People would logically believe or think or conclude that perhaps the gospel had failed, but it had not. Verse 6 once more says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But 
Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Praise God that God's promise did not come through fleshly succession or association but through his promise. It was his choice. And his choice made a way for all nations, all peoples, to be blessed through his seed, the Messiah. Otherwise, the Messiah would not be necessary, if you think about it. Because salvation would only come to God's people, the Jews, those whom he had chosen but this is why Paul was so deeply grieved. They had, they had themselves chosen not to believe. Paul goes on to explain to you who are really the children of Abraham. Is it those who descend by the flesh, those who were born in the genealogy of Abraham? Are those Abraham's children? Well, as we read, it's very clear that those aren't the ones that are counted as his offspring. But those that, by faith, are of the promise, even as Isaac was the son of promise and not Ishmael, who was the firstborn according to the flesh. If we were going by succession, then we would know that the heir would be the firstborn. But the firstborn is not always the firstborn. It's the one that is chosen, who is selected by the Lord. That we would know it's by promise and not by the flesh. God promised a son to Abraham and Isaac through whom his children would be counted, the child of promise. Paul also gave the example of Isaac and Rebekah and how God chose Jacob over Esau, Jacob being the younger twin. We need to note that, uh, you know, and I know that God's choice is difficult to understand, but we benefit from it. As you look at this chapter, if you go back through it, maybe later on today, maybe later on this, this week, you'll, you'll start to see what it is that's being explained this morning. That we actually benefit from God choosing, not from the flesh, but according to his promise. We benefit from that. God chose Jacob to be the heir of God's covenant of salvation instead of Esau. And it had nothing to do with works. Just in case we continue to go down that, that path, you know, that, that work somehow is what justifies us, we need to understand, we need to back up and understand it's faith that justifies. It had nothing to do with performance. But it was all by God's choice. You can say that when God chose or accepted one, he rejected the other. That's why I pointed out that as I had Modesto, I chose him. I selected him. 
basically in a very real sense, I accepted him and rejected everyone else. Because I didn't pick you. Right? Does it make sense? Is that, is that reasonable? But listen to this. He didn't love Esau any less as it pertains to salvation. You see, if you go back and read about Esau, he was a very blessed man overall. And God desired that he also would trust and believe in God's promises. Even Esau. So again, God's promise did not come through fleshly succession or association, but through promise. It was his choice, and his choice made a way for all nations, all peoples to be blessed through his seed, the Messiah, not just the Jews. The question for us is, are all who are called Christians truly Christians? The answer to that is no. In the same way that all, are all Israelites truly Israelites, truly Israel? And the answer is, as we read here, the answer is no. Israel means governed by God. And I know that I say that often. You know, are we governed by God? Are we yielded to him and his authority? Does his word have authority over our lives? Are we governed by God? I say that often because the genuine believer will be governed by God. We will yield our will to his will. He has a perfect will. Ours is imperfect. None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only those who are governed by God are truly Christians. That's why in the Bible we can, we can test, we can find out, we can see if we're proven by reading Scripture and seeing if that reflects our lives. Are we being fruitful in the Spirit? Or are we producing that which comes from the flesh? Because only those who are governed by God are truly Christians. And God promised that all the nations would be blessed through the Messiah and his salvation would come by grace through faith in him. God chose to make this promise because he loved everyone and he desires that none should perish, but that all would reach repentance and salvation would only be possible if salvation came through his promise and we would be saved by grace through faith. So promise is a choice. And that's what we see in the first 13 verses of this chapter. Let's go on, though. Again, Paul is explaining how it is that people come to salvation, whether Jew or Gentile. It, it makes no difference. And he's making the point. Remember, this is the very word of God. And so you can say, forget Paul. Know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. God has written this for our sake so that we would understand how to come to salvation. Secondly, choice doesn't absolve responsibility. Verse 14, as we continue, says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Some people believe that God has chosen to make choices for people. Even though we've gone over what we've gone over, even though we reflect his image, some people still believe that God has made choices for us. In the sense that some are chosen vessels of condemnation and wrath, and other, others are chosen vessels of righteousness and salvation. That is simply not true. You see, God is consistent. And as I've stated already a couple times, God wishes that none should perish. None is none. Right? Zero. Because if there was a concern whether the, the supposed elect, elect in the sense to where we are chosen for salvation, if there's any concern for that, then why have any concern? We shouldn't have any concern. Just don't worry about it. They'll be saved anyway. That, that's, that's not the way it works. Remember what John said. All these things are written so that you may believe, right? And that's a matter of choice. God is consistent and wishes that none should perish, including Ishmael, Esau, and guess who else? Pharaoh, too. He, desired, he didn't desire for Pharaoh to perish. That's not what he desired. But let's read verse 18 one more time. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What, what then does this mean? Let's define mercy. You all know what mercy means, right? The definition of mercy? Not getting what you deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Is it our right to have God's mercy? No. Is it his obligation that we receive mercy? No, otherwise it wouldn't be mercy. Right? Is God unfair for not giving mercy? No. It would be unfair if he was obliged to do so and didn't. But then it wouldn't be mercy. As God desires to give mercy, it is his choice and he is righteous one way or the other. But then comes verse 19. You will... Say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can we be held responsible for God's exercise of his free will? Again, the question comes back to whether God is making your mind up for you to do what is evil or good. Does, my, does God make up your mind? What does God wish? What does God desire? That all should reach repentance. That is a change of mind. That is your responsibility. It's my responsibility. I have the power to choose good or evil. It's a reflection. 
of who God is. God always chooses to do right. That which is perfect, that which is holy. He never makes up your mind for you. So then let's go back to verses 16 and 17. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So we ask the question, did God choose for Pharaoh, for Pharaoh to harden his heart? The answer is no. Pharaoh chose that. Pharaoh hardened it against God and God gave him over to his hardened heart. An example of this, and we've already gone through it, Romans chapter 1 Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God cannot hold someone responsible for something that they had no choice in. So it is choice. In each one of those examples, it is a matter of choice. If I yielded to the flesh, I would not be standing here. If I did whatever I wanted and then still demanded of God mercy, it would not be right. Because he is just. But through all of this, God glorifies himself through his demonstration of mercy. But listen to this. He will also and has also and will also glorify himself time and time again through the hardness of man's heart. You think we can thwart his plan, his purposes? We cannot. Both the honorable and the dishonorable vessel brings glory to God. Because he is fair to both. And God is not unrighteous because he chooses to not be merciful toward the one who chooses to be unrighteous. Again, he is he's fair. Verse 22 says, what if God desiring... In fact, let's back up to verse 19 and we'll read through to 24. It says, and you will say to, to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But, God, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What, uh, will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here's a statement straight from what we just read. God does not prepare certain people for wrath 
and destruction. But listen, he, quote, has endured with much patience with those who have chosen to be vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Some people seem to be bent on destruction. Some people seem to be set on being destructive, and God endures is what we read. He chooses to endure them to make his mercy known and himself be glorified. Oh, it's pretty amazing how sometimes God will allow certain things, certain situations to continue, certain people to be, you could say, abrasive in many ways, in order that he may glorify himself, perhaps in someone else or even in that person. Have you ever known someone to be so deep in sin, so far, seems like so far from God, and at some point they come to Christ? I, I am an example of that very thing. God will glorify himself. I know that my sister is better off because I was that pharaoh in her life. I was that one who was a thorn in her side. I was the sandpaper. I was the one that would oppose her, reject her. I know that my sister was better off and that time that for many years I rejected Christ. She continued. She was steadfast. She was immovable. She continued to express her faith in Christ. And I have no doubt to pray for me. No, God will always glorify himself. God does demonstrate his mercy by not only making salvation available to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Not only to those who seem to have salvation already, those who are brought up perhaps in a Christian home, to those, oh, you are, you are privileged to be in such a home that is expressing, exemplifying a faith. But also to those who seem to be in darkness and doing the work that is directly opposing God. Listen, just because God allows people to make choices doesn't make him unfair by applying mercy to some and not others. He is just, and we do a good job on our own, choosing God's wrath because we choose to reject him in his righteousness. Verse 25, as he continues, says, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, uh, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Well, as we read here, remember God's word is sure, it is true. He is faithful to his word, and God's judgment will not last forever against Israel, as promised. Is it something they deserve? Absolutely not. But at some point, they will all turn to Christ. And you can read through Revelation and know when that will be, but there will be a point when they will turn. 
they will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. But something that he says here also is that God will always maintain a remnant. By the way, even that turning is not automatic. It's because they finally realize who Jesus is. So they come to salvation the same way you and I do. Now and then. You see, God's promise was never made to the whole nation of Israel. That is of salvation, but rather to those who chose to believe God by faith, just like Abraham. God could have judged Israel completely like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was making that example. Uh, We could have been judged just like Sodom and Gomorrah, but by his grace he did not, and he was merciful in maintaining a remnant of Israel. It always has been a matter of choice as it is today. But God doesn't absolve us of responsibility just because of his choice of mercy, just because of his choice of grace. So promise is a choice. Number two, choice doesn't absolve responsibility. And thirdly, God chose, now you choose. Verse 30. What then shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So Paul concludes this chapter with these words. Was Israel wrong in pursuing righteousness through the law? The answer he concludes with is yes, they were wrong. They didn't choose to pursue righteousness by faith, and therefore to them Jesus Christ became a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. That is true today. That is the case today. If we believe that we can attain righteousness by works, Jesus Christ becomes to us a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. We either walk securely on the rock in truth or becomes to us a stone of stumbling. We stumble. We are even crushed under the truth of God's word. This has been explained in Romans 7, 7, which says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. You know, as you, as you look in, at the word, you know, sometimes you can ask friends, you can ask family, you can ask coworkers. Do you think... That you, upon death, will be in heaven or hell? And many will say, I believe I'll be in heaven. And, and the answer is, why? Because I'm not like others. I haven't murdered. I haven't, you know, and they go through the list. Right? Listen, the law is not there to make us righteous. The law is there simply to point out that we are lawbreakers. 
and we are in desperate need of a Savior. It, it was, it's there in order to be that which keeps us, that brings us to that point to where we are led to the Savior. Understanding that we have a need, we have a desperate need to be saved by God through Jesus Christ. The law reveals our sin, and it has no power to save. No one keeps it perfectly. No one can, and therefore no one can attain righteousness through it. And God chose to offer salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. And so we go back to Jesus Christ. That is who Paul was preaching. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, God chose to offer salvation not by right, not by obligation, not by the flesh, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He has chosen. He has exercised his will. He has given you a way, each and every person, and he desires that none should perish, that none would be condemned for all eternity, but that all should reach repentance. Have you come to that place in your own life to where you've completely yielded to the Lord? Is he not only your Savior, but is he your Lord as well? Now you choose. Promise is a choice. Choice doesn't absolve responsibility. And God chose. Now you choose. Some questions that I'm going to leave you with. And then we're going to read Joshua 24 one more time. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Because we are justified by faith. And the follow-up question to that is, are you governed by God in Christ? What does that look like? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And follow Christ. Learn to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us. Today you will need to exercise your free will throughout the day. And I pray that it starts with a very conscientious very deliberate and clear decision at this very moment, if you haven't already, to choose to believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who died for your sins, was buried in three days after he was buried, was raised from the grave by the Father. It is only through him that we know salvation. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says we shall be saved. Not only know salvation, but walk out salvation with fear and trembling. This is man's all, that you may fear God and obey his commandments. I pray that we would be those people. I leave you with this. As Joshua said this, and remember this, this was not to the other nations. This was to God's people, chosen people. He said this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that are your fathers, that, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And this day, uh, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, that you did not impose upon us by making up our minds, by choosing for us. Because we could then freely express belief, faith, as you have made a way for us to be redeemed, reconciled unto the Father. I pray, Father, and I ask that you would help us to understand the sacrifice. Lord, that the only reason why we have the ability to choose salvation is because of your finished work. How it is that you sent your son to die on the cross and to shed his blood for the remission or the forgiveness of our sins, to atone for all of them, past, present, and future. Lord, his blood suffices. And I pray, Father, that we would see that kindness, we would see that love, we would see that sacrificial love that you so freely followed through with because of your love for us. And Lord, not only would we, would we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but I, I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to walk, Lord, in obedience to your word, that we may bring you glory and we would live our, our lives with great hope of what's to come, and that is eternity with you. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And thank you for choosing us. In Jesus' name we pray.